0: Welcome back to another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens, below the line, the mover, with the movers and shakers, the TV and filmmakers, the producers, the directors, the writers, the actors, the cinematographers, production designers, costume designers, film editors, sound editors, sound mixers, uh, authors, playwright today. We've even got a playwright joining us. Playwright turned. Uh, film director, uh, and so many other. Oh, and let's not forget our composers. All our regular listeners know how much I love our composers. Um, But welcome, welcome. It is, ah, as I'm breaking things here in the studio today, uh, it is uh, Martin Luther King Day, or here in Southern California, better known as Anniversary of the Northridge Earthquake Day. But globally, today is, it is, it's Betty White's 100th birthday. And even though she is not with us, the viral campaign for the Betty White Challenge is going strong out there. Um, If you don't know what it is, hashtag it, Betty White Challenge. And basically, it's give $5 to a favorite animal rescue animal charity of your choice in Betty's honor. Uh, Here in Los Angeles, Los Angeles Zoo is doing a huge Betty White birthday blowout uh, that will be running not just today, but throughout the week. Uh, Hollywood Walk of Fame even cleaned up and repaired her star. So it's all nice and shiny for her 100th birthday. I think they have a little bit more to do, but because of rains, they stopped. But, you know, what better way to celebrate today than honoring Betty White Um, so there's my plug for the beloved Betty White, whom I adored. And yes, I did at nine minutes after 12 to this morning, I did honor my Betty White challenge. So I hope all of you do too. And I'm so glad that many of you, it's your day off. Martin Luther King day, um, federal holiday. So hope you're listening to behind the lens. Love, love, love what we have planned for you today. Um, Joining us at the midpoint of the show is writer, director, and playwright and Pulitzer Prize for Drama nominee, Greg Newberry, who's going to join us talking about his political thriller, political courtroom thriller, with a little dash of something else thrown in there, a little Twilight Zone element. Who is Amos Otis? Um... I gotta tell you, once you start watching this film, you cannot look away. You will be watching, your jaw will be dropping, your eyes will be bulging, and you will be blown away by who is Amos Otis. Uh, and it revolves around the trial of someone who assassinates the president. Uh, a president who was a wannabe dictator. Uh, and causing a lot of problems with device, divisiveness polarization, uh, and a few other things that we've seen play out in real time uh, to a large degree in the United States. So I can't wait to talk to Greg about this. Uh, This started as a play, and then he adapted it for the screen. Uh, And he brought his same actors with his two leads from the play to the theatrical version, to the film narrative. And i got to tell you, Amazing, amazing performances, but an amazing powerhouse film. So Greg will be joining us at the midpoint of the show. But first, this is a fun movie. Last Radio Call. Uh, it opened last... When did it open? It opened last week? Did it open last week? Yes. <laughs> no, tomorrow. Uh, or It's on Terror Film. But it's opening everywhere on digital and VOD this week. But it premiered on Terror Films over the weekend. It is called Last Radio Call. Writer, director, editor, sound designer, cinematographer, Isaac Rodriguez. This started as a two-minute short that went viral. A body cam short film. And that's where the premise started for last radio call. And we pick up our story um, with two police officers responding to a disturbance call at an abandoned and, abandoned and very creepy hospital uh, that looks right out of a, a Stephen King novel or a Jason Blum movie. Uh, it is creepy, 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 and as you'll hear Isaac talk about, Yes, this is the actual condition of this hospital. Um, they didn't have to do any set dress. But we have two officers. They're investigating. All we have is their body cam footage. And then one disappears. Something happens. You hear screams. You hear noise and something happens. Fast forward to a year later. His widow is upset because there was his never any resolution to his disappearance. He was never given a... a a formal funeral, never acknowledged, never uh, looked at as a hero. She wants to get to the truth. And as you'll hear me say to Isaac, you know, there are moments in this film with wanting to get to the truth. I'm expecting David Duchovny to pop up at any moment. Uh, But this is her journey, and she hires a documentary film crew to follow her as she starts to investigate her husband's disappearance. Herself. Uh, it's very, it's very verite in its styling. Uh, you've got nice blends of body cam footage, real time, quote unquote present day footage, night vision, um, and the sound design is perfect It perfectly marries with the visuals and adds so much depth and texture. And yes, we've got a lot. We have supernatural. We have uh, made-up Native American folklore that is so believable that you think it is believable, uh, that it is real. But it's not. It all came from Isaac's uh, creativity. So, without any further ado, take a listen to my exclusive interview with Isaac Rodriguez talking last radio call. Hi, Isaac. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm excited to be talking to you about this film. Oh, thank you. You had me with the opening body cam footage. I you hooked me for the ride here, Isaac. <laughs> I'm glad. And you did not disappoint. You never know what to expect anytime you have any kind of concept, um, story concept of potential found footage of some sort. But what you do here. With your visual design, with body cam footage and then camera actual camera footage uh, in a surveillance kind of fashion, trailing Sarah using night vision, you keep us so visually interested. And by vacillating, you know, body cam footage, we've got a flashlight, a circular flashlight beam. So we fall into gray on the periphery with the the actual body cam footage. So right away, you're starting to get into some grayed potential negative space from, uh, you know, subconsciously as you're looking at this. You're only focusing on what's in the light, in the circle of light. So you're not really seeing what's on the sides. And as we go through this story and Sarah goes in there with a, cam- with a uh, camera guy, then we can start getting the broader picture uh, in this hospital, in this Yorktown hospital, and it, you just expand our visual purview and draw us even deeper. And I just love how you've done that. I know that this began as your initial little viral two-minute body cam video. What was the impetus to turn this into a feature?
1: Well, uh, I've been wanting to make it a feature for a couple years, but I didn't want to make it 100% on body cam footage because Mm -hmm. I thought it might be too gimmicky and people might get tired of, you know, just body cam, body cam. Yeah. And I was so I was watching this other uh, Japanese found footage film called uh, Nori, The Curse, and um, I loved how you know it was kind of shot like a like a documentary, but it had these little like random you know clips of different things and different audio video formats, and I, I just thought it was an interesting way to tell the story, and so I kind of wanted to do something similar where. Instead of making the whole movie body cam footage, we you know we make the movie
0: about the body cam footage and then kind of you know grow from there. And, and you bookend the film perfectly with with body cam footage. Um, yeah. You know you really have this structured so well from the visual standpoint, and hand in hand with your visuals is your sound. The sound design is so good, it is so impeccable. We hear, it's always scarier when you can't see it and you hear all kinds of stuff and the way you've played with sound and morphed it. know, when we have uh, the first tape recorder that uh, Sarah comes into possession of that she took from her husband's former partner and you're listening to that and you start hearing this cacophony blend of Native American chants and screams and howls and unearthly maybe screams maybe torture and it's I love the sonic layering that you have happening within those confined elements but also just in general anytime we are at the hospital anytime we are looking at footage Be it a plethora of body cam footage, David's body cam footage, had was that always your intent to really make sound a hand in hand companion with your with the visuals?
1: Uh, Yeah, definitely, yeah. And open, so you know what is causing it, and stuff like that. So yeah, the audio is definitely a big component
0: to the film. Your mix is just absolutely wonderful, as are the elements of that mix. However, I don't think Sarah should have went because she didn't like what was on a tape. I don't think she should have smashed the recorder against the wall. Yeah. <laughs> we could have done without damaging a vintage piece of equipment like that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You have this idea for the visuals. You have this idea for the audio. You know you don't want to go all body cam, body cam, body cam. You've got to, to break things up. Where did the idea for the officer is gone. It's a year later. Uh, his widow is now obsessed with, quote, unquote, finding the truth. The truth is out there. I was waiting for David Duchovny to pop up in here. Um, <laughs> you know the truth is out there I want to know the truth the police aren't investigating he didn't get any kind of glorious tribute as a fallen officer I want the Mm -hmm. truth where did that come from to start building a story with that starting point I think it's um you know I've seen a lot of things on the news
1: where a family member you know they, they someone goes missing and you know at first it's you know it's sad, it's tragic, and it's all over the news. And then about a month later, um, you know you just stop hearing about it, and then it's you know the the news moves on. And most of the time, even though that family member has never been found, that you know the the parents or the spouse, they're just kind of left with nothing. And I think that's like kind of like a form of torture where you don't know if they're if they're you know they're most likely dead there's that like small percentage that they, they could be alive somewhere or they could be I mean it's just um to me it's like a like a, a form of like purgatory just you know be just
0: being alive and not knowing if, if your spouse is alive or dead or you know what happened to them mm-hmm. you know and how did you you know you get that premise how did you then build on her journey because I like the breadcrumbs I like how you tie it together from point A to point B and her hassling hara- and harassing people and not getting her head blown off but in doing it so I'm curious about that and also bringing in the idea of the cameraman is there with her recording mm-hmm. this but he's very 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 much in the background he doesn't get involved yeah, uh, as you well know yeah,
1: like I kind of imagined if someone had hired me, you know, I'm a very like quiet guy. And, um, you know, when I was first doing like video work and stuff, I mean, I was, I, I kind of operated the same way. If someone, when someone hired me for a small, much of a character, but kind of like this invisible eyeball, just kind of like experience everything that's going on.
0: Mm -hmm. I really appreciate that you did that because so often, as you well know, in actual documentaries, quite often the filmmaker or in docs low budget, no budget, micro budget, and even lower than micro budget, there's no money so you're shooting yourself and you you were doing everything here essentially on last radio call but so often you'll hear them interjecting and it's like, wait, the story yeah. isn't about you. You're just filming it. Yeah, the camera. So I really love and, and appreciate that you did that here with last radio call. Mm-hmm. Obviously, none of this could happen without that Yorktown Memorial Hospital. Couldn't yeah. happen. It's just like with real estate. Location is everything. Oh, um, yeah. How did you... Stumble upon Yorktown Hospital. How, what kind of hoops did you have to go through to have gain access? I suspect uh, that might have eaten up a big part of your budget as well. But talk to me yeah. about the hospital because without this, you got nothing.
1: You know, it's, it's kind of interesting the whole like, there's a, there's a very interesting culture of like people who own these abandoned buildings. Uh, we we'd originally shot a, a short film. In a, in a big mansion, it's called the like, um, Black Swan Inn in San Antonio. And I guess the owner of that house, they also own, um, they own another place and then they own this Yorktown Memorial Hospital. And they do tours. I mean, you can do a tour there almost any day of the year. They're there giving tours. And um, so we went to go check it out. And it was, I mean, it was just an, it's an amazing location and it's so raw. And it's um, you know it's it just has that look that, that creepy abandoned you know um, look and so uh, we talked to the owners and you know they were pretty cool with us filming there um, yeah so yeah I mean it did it, it did eat up into the budget a little bit and um, one mistake I made was um, we filmed all the hospital stuff we filmed it in one day so <laughs> that was that was a mistake i'll never make again you know i was trying to save a little bit too much money and i and, and, you know it's very easy in the beginning to think oh yeah i can just we can shoot everything in one day and uh, it was a nightmare i mean we luckily we got everything we needed but i mean we, we shot like 25 minutes of the film in, the, in that one I mean it wasn't even a day it was like a night because we had to wait till the sun went down and it was I mean it was hot in there it was humid it had just rained it was wet everywhere and the humidity was just you know suffocating you it was, it was a crazy shoot but I mean luckily it worked out
0: well within the hospital itself now did you have to do any set dress in there? Or is all of that stuff, um, you know, the gurneys, the broken wheelchairs, is all of that just naturally there, or did yeah, you... Yeah, every,
1: everything was there, even the, the coffin. The coffin, I, did, I didn't even know it was there until we, we, we went to go film. Um, I had visited there a few months back, and the coffin wasn't there. And then we showed up, and I just saw this coffin there. I was like, "Well, I mean, I guess we'll use it in the scene because it looks, you know, really cool." And it was all—it was actually a pre—a pre-used coffin that they had dug up. Oh God! Body out. <laughs> and uh, sadly, they—they they didn't tell us the coffin was used until everyone had got inside and took in selfies and everything. So <laughs> that was a uh, interesting, uh, interesting night.
0: Oh my God! Now, does the does the facility have power? Does it have electricity? Did you you know what was this like with there, the camera? Because you're shooting with one camera, so did you have to bring yeah. in hook up generators, batteries? What were you doing technically?
1: They they did have they did give us an extension cord. They, uh, I guess there was one. There's one. There's a couple lines of power in there, um, but. Um, I just went in, I didn't I did even you know they had power, I just assumed it was all dead, and so I just stopped up and prepared, you know, with batteries and all, and things like that, so, I mean, it was like true, guerrilla-type
0: filming. Now, was it my imagination, or is there one shot in the film that we actually do see an, ex- an extension cord off to the yeah, side yeah. on the floor? That, yeah, so yeah, so that's an extension cord that they had ran. I had no idea it was there until I was editing.
1: I was like, "Oh crap!" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that was like the one line of power in in the whole building, I guess. That one
0: extension cord. That was really generous of them to give you one extension cord. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. And they, and they gathered us before the,
1: the film. the The owners, so they or they, they have a groundskeeper. And they they told us like okay well we're gonna head out um, if if you hear anyone banging on the door call the police and don't let them in and uh, we, everyone was like what are you talking about like, you know, are we are we gonna get like murdered here I mean, it was I mean it was pretty scary when he said that but yeah we we didn't have any issues we were
0: good well you know and I did see graffiti and whatnot on the walls do squatters yeah. get access in there and hang out there.
1: Uh, I mean, so they have a groundskeeper, but yeah, I guess. I mean, it's so big. I mean, if 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 you were to go in there, you you can really get lost because it's this massive, and there's an underground area too that's even like more confusing. And so it's very easy to to hide in there or get lost in there.
0: Wow, did you did you shot list anything or storyboard out anything after you had been there? Uh, all ready to get an idea or did you just go in and blindly start going up and down the halls?
1: So I, I, so I had been there a year before and I took a tour and I um, had taken video so I had a rough idea of you know, what was there or you know, what areas we wanted to film in so, so i been going completely blind. Um, originally I planned to shoot the whole movie just off an outline. Um, but man, that, I think that would have been a huge uh, nightmare because it really helped having the script and knowing, you know, kind of where we're going and stuff like that.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, how scripted was was this? Because the only person that we really hear talking, other than what's, you know, on recordings, is Sarah Froelich as Sarah. You know? I would say
1: it's, it's probably 80% scripted. I mean, like, scripted. I mean, I. I mean, so I mean, most of the movies I do now, I, I have the the main script, and then I let the actors just kind of you know roughly interpret that script,
0: and they can kind of make it their own, um, you know, voice and stuff like that. So it's not too too forced. Mm-hmm. Because you were shooting this yourself, you're doing the sound, you're doing the editing, you're wearing all these hats. Mm-hmm. Did it benefit you while you were actually wandering around and shooting? Were you editing in your head? Were you editing at the end of the day? What was that production process like for you with all of these hats? Or were you here starting to hear voices in your head?
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I... You know, while I'm shooting, I'm I'm kind of like pre, pre-editing in my head. So at the end of the day, I know which take was good and which one I'm going to use already. And actually, after every shoot, I... I sit on my computer, I upload the footage, and I kind of, like, drop in the, the good takes, so I kind of have a rough idea of where things are going already.
2: Mm-hmm. But after editing, um, I mean, it took me about
1: two months to edit, and during that time, you've seen the movie so much in your head that it's you, you kind of become crazy, and you, you're just, you're kind of numb to it, and you don't know... if you you made an amazing movie or you made one of the worst movies of all time, so it's scary, it's kind of scary at the end when you're finishing up the edit. (laughs) Well,
0: well, you didn't make one of the worst movies of all time. I can can tell you that. I can tell you that. Uh, (laughs) Was it difficult to cast because you are only working with a few people, which doesn't surprise me. It gives you one less headache. But was casting a challenge with this one? Uh, it was pretty
1: easy. Most of the people in the movie, they're they're actors I I worked with before, and so I knew what their strengths were, and I knew that they would fit the character well. Uh, the only one I hadn't worked with before was Sarah Frolic, and um, you know, we had we had another actress lined up, and she had canceled like two like two or three weeks before. The shoot, And so um, I had been really friends with Sarah on Instagram, and she had a very, you know, interesting look and a very interesting voice. And so I had her, you know, she was interested in acting, and so I had her say, you know, do a test video, and she she did really well. And so it ended up working out really well.
0: Now, is it difficult to get people who were willing to go into that hospital?
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, it was pretty... Um, you know, at first it, it seems a little like intimidating, but once you're in there and you're working and you're sweating,
0: like all the paranormal stuff kind of melts away. Mhm you do have the the Native American you know the lore in there about the mm-hmm. the red sister is any of that drawn from lore of the area, or was that something you totally came up with in your own creative brain?
1: It's uh yeah, it's, it's mostly 95% of something I created that, I, you know, I, I, in the beginning, I thought about doing, like, some a real kind of Native American legend, but nowadays, there's, like, there's so many films that, that kind of do that now. Mm-hmm. You know, they make a movie about the Wendigo or, you know, the Ghost Witch, things like that, and so I really wanted to make something new and unique, and,
0: and, and to me, it's just, It's more fun that way, you know, being able to create your own, you know, urban legend or stuff like that. Well, it comes across as so authentic that that's why I had to ask. Um, Yeah. (laughs) And part of that is because of the plethora of films that we're getting past few years especially that were shot during the the pandemic at its worst yeah because you just draw on that lore that's already there it makes it a lot easier you can go to remote locations nobody's around so there are a lot of these stories that are out there a lot of skinwalker stories have been popping up the past year i love that this came from you that's fabulous isaac thank you well fine now what is it that drives you as a filmmaker this is a very specific kind of story to tell it's not a straight horror it's kind of a horror terror thriller all rolled into one but I'm curious what drives you with your filmmaking with your storytelling is there a certain genre that appeals to you what is it that keeps you going
1: I think it's definitely um, it's just I think creating something that's that has like an unknown horror factor to it to me that's just creating these like kind of horror stories that have these weird kind of weird unknown factors to them to me that to me that's the most exciting I'm a, I'm a huge fan of you know H.P. Lovecraft and stuff like that and so I just love that like ancient horror type of feel and you know try to put in as much of my work as I can mm-hmm. but yeah I just I just love creating
0: you know horror it's just it's just uh <laughs> it's just a shame it. <laughs> well I love that your trajectory has taken you from doing you know lots and lots of shorts you know really quick shorts snippets yeah that yeah. you know you're watching you're hooked and then you go well wait a minute I want a whole film but yeah. n- now you're getting into the feature-length projects. So I'm curious, what do you have coming up now after last radio call? Are you revisiting the kind of supernatural genre again? Where are you taking us yeah. next?
1: So after last radio call, I, I had actually started a, a whole new film. It's, uh, it's called Deadware, and it's actually available right now on Amazon. And it's a bit, it's a it's a horror film but it's it's a kind of like a screen a screen life film and uh, it takes place in the nineteen late 1990s when webcams had first you know been developed and there's two friends and they they stumble across this kind of haunted um, online game and it's a feature film and um, yeah that's out now and then um, in December we shot um, another found footage film it's called A Town Full of Ghosts and it's about a couple they move into this ghost town and they're trying to renovate it and make it this big tourist attraction but um, they you know they stumble across something evil that's that's been there and that's in editing right now and it should be out in a couple months
0: Wow now will you have a distributor for that will you go right to Amazon
1: Uh, A Town Full of Ghosts will probably um, be through a distributor it was a it was a bigger project. Um, Deadware is out already. It was a you know smaller kind of personal project, so I, I just wanted to re- release
0: that one on my own. Mm-hmm. Well, and and for a filmmaker like yourself, how beneficial is it to have all of these platforms now, where you can release films yourself directly to a platform that, uh, that people can access? Yeah, I
1: mean it's it's. Uh, you know, the distribution model, has it changes so rapidly, but right now, um, you know, I think, I really think if you're doing smaller, you know, horror films, it can definitely be beneficial because now there's so many outlets that you can, you know, there's Amazon, um, another big one now is is YouTube. Some people are, up, you know, putting their new films um, on YouTube because it's, you know, it's worldwide and there's some channels they have, you know, 22 million subscribers.
0: And so mm-hmm. that's almost like a, you know, a bigger channel. But
1: um, yeah, there's just so many outlets now that there's, if, I think if you have a really good film, uh, you know, you can, you have a pretty good chance of, of getting seen.
0: Well, now, Last Radio Call, that's coming out on Terror Films, on their mm-hmm. platform, on their channel.
1: Yeah, that, then that'll be today. If, at 5 o'clock, or 5 o'clock Central, actually. And so, yeah, they're putting it on their channel. And then they have deals with other bigger channels like uh, Kings of Horror. And then next week, it'll be on all the major uh, digital platforms. So it, it'll be, you know, it's, it'll be
0: everywhere. Oh, wow. Wow. Now, with the with the upcoming films... Have you been able to bring in other other crews so that you're not wearing every single hat, or are we still in the Isaac is is all things to this film?
1: Uh, actually, on the, the Ghost Town movie, I actually I, I teamed up with uh, an editor. His name is Thomas Burke, and he's a huge. Um, you know, he he helps run a found footage website, and he's one of the biggest. You know, found footage enthusiast I've, I've ever met. So we're working together, editing that one, and he's done a he's done a really good job. And um, yeah, I mean, it's, I think the for me, doing the camera is something I don't think I can ever not do because <laughs> it's, it's so important. To get it. to me, I'm a big visual person as well, so it to me it's very important getting like that visual message across. And I don't I don't know if I could.
0: Ever trust another uh, camera guy well you know be- and that was my exclusive interview with isaac rodriguez the last radio call now come on where else are you going to hear any filmmaker talk about using a coffin a pre-used coffin it was actually used it was buried it was dug up body was exhumed for whatever reason and to inadvertently have an entire crew, everybody taking selfies in a coffin that a dead body was in. Um, I don't think you're going to hear that anywhere except on Behind the Lens as Pam is sitting in there shaking her head and laughing. Um, but yeah, check out Last Radio Call. It's still on Terror Films. And this week it goes wide on all digital and VOD platforms. So it's fun. It's a fun movie, and Isaac Rodriguez is a voice I'm really excited to see more from in the future. And right now, we're going to welcome Greg Newberry, writer, director, playwright, and mastermind behind who is Amos Otis. Welcome, Greg.
2: Oh, hi, Debbie. How are you?
0: I am beyond excited to be talking to you about this film. (laughs) You blew my mind. Oh, thank you so much. This in the best possible way. Uh. (laughs) <laughs> there are people that blow my mind in the worst possible way, so let's just clarify that right now. I'm glad, I'm glad I'm on the best possible. This is a wow, 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 wow. It's a kick in the teeth, a slap upside our collective heads. It's a punch in the gut. It, you call it like it is in the USA over the past several years. You hold a mirror up to us. You force us to look at what we've become as a nation. This is a political thriller. You take a sharp left turn, make us think outside the box, and expand our minds, and it is sincerely one of the most powerful courtroom dramas that I've seen. Um, You are very focused. You are very honed in. You don't have extraneous things happening. You focus on the message. You focus on what is at hand. This man is on trial. He has assassinated the president. And now he has to either get convicted or, th- or with a creative public defender representing him. Uh, save his own life. Uh, and you just take us, you say everything in this film that a majority of the American people have been thinking for years. And that took guts to do that, and I love it.
2: Oh, thank you. You brought tears in my eyes, man. Wow, thank you so much. And, of course,
0: I must say any film that opens with somebody with a pickup truck filled with those ugly (laughs) reddish-orange rubber dodgeballs, and you dump them, and it's like, okay, and I'm wondering, what are we doing with the dodgeballs? And then we (laughs) see him in sniper mode killing the dodgeballs. Every elementary school student. Like me, who was one of the last ones to get picked on a dodgeball team and had countless <laughs> dodgeballs thrown at their head, yay, yay, Greg! You have vindicated <laughs> all of us.
2: Thanks. <laughs> yeah, that
0: was a fun scene. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I mean that. What a way to, no pun intended, kick off, um, the film. And you just, you just soar, you soar. Um, you don't waste time with backstory. It's okay. We see the vol- We see the dodgeballs. They get obliterated. We see Amos Otis. Uh, next time we see him, he's in custody uh, and facing charges for assassinating the president of the United States. Uh, you know, where does this story even begin, Greg? Um, because you don't give us a lead-in as to why the whys, the, the who, what, where, when, high, how. All of that takes place within this extremely well-crafted, basically a well-crafted monologue that is delivered by Josh Cadwick, who plays Amos Otis. And i got to tell you, Josh, this is an award-worthy performance. Um, okay. But where do you even <clears throat> start with this? <laughs> uh, it's...
2: Well, that's quite a Um, send-up. Geez, where did I start with it? I just started with it like everybody else in the country. I was just really frustrated with the way things were. Um, And ironically, after the elections in 2016, um, I volunteered to work on a messaging committee, um, a political messaging committee, and it was so frustrating because it was like nobody seemed to get what was going on. And after about a year and a half of, of that time, I just sat down and went, you know, I, I've got something to say here, and here's, here's and that's what came out. And, um, you know, there's there these ideas that have been floating around for years, like um, the whole concept of if, could you go, you know, what if you could go back in time, would you kill Hitler? Or, um, all kinds of weird things like that have been floating around in the universe. And it was like they all just kind of landed on my head at the same time. And uh, – Ironically, the dodgeball scene—I I, I knew it was going to be—you know—we had to have an assassination, and I was struggling with how to open the movie because I didn't want to show that. And it was just really strange, you know. I was like, "How do you show somebody?" Because you know, it's—it's—I it's, wanted the the president to be an enigma, and mm-hmm. you know, we don't really deal with him; we never see him or anything like that. And it was like, "How can I do that?" And then, I guess going back to third grade, the
0: dodgeball thing popped <laughs> see? in my head. <laughs> There it is the yeah, universal went, wow, that's a cool opening scene. the universal <laughs> touchstone for us all.
2: <laughs> I said that I wrote that and the rest of it just kind of it was like I didn't stop writing. It was like once I had that we landed in the court you know it was like I heard that that ball pop in my head and then I heard the jail cell slam shut and then I was in the holding cell and I was like, okay, here we go you know and it took off from there so that's a long-winded answer to your question but I, I, it was just a combination of things really.
0: Well, and, you know, as this story progresses and as we start, you know, the question is asked through the whole film. Who is Amos Otis? Uh, And you send us on, you know, we go down different trails. That, okay, here's a driver's license of a black man. (laughs) Okay, whose name is Amos Otis. That's who the the pickup truck belonged to. Um, You are not a black man sitting there with handcuffs on. Uh, in your in your pretty orange jumpsuit, um, it, you know, so it just it, it snowballs, it snowballs, and you give us little breadcrumbs that Josh, as quote unquote Amos Otis, I mean, he just his performance and the confidence with which he conveys information, and it's such a confidence that as out there is some of what he's saying may sound part of you is saying, Yeah, I believe this guy. Mm-hmm. He's not wishy washy in this, in, in character, in performance. And that really is the crux of what makes this as powerful as it is. Because there is rational thinking going on here that may not sound rational, but when you follow all the plot points, And the fact that you throw actual historical events into your timeline, into um, Amos' testimony, you bring in Lincoln, you bring in Hitler, you bring in Kennedy. And it's, you know, one of those grand schemes. Okay, well, if Kennedy hadn't been assassinated, look what would have happened, or what would not have happened. If Hitler had been assassinated... What would have happened? Same thing with Lincoln. And you give us these what if scenarios. And it's a lot of respects, it's very, you know, very reminiscent of a Rod Serling kind of twilight zone. (laughs) Uh, But it's so grounded in truth and reality with what we have collectively as a country been living through with growing divisiveness. Over the past four, five, six years, um, that and you're tackling all the issues that everybody gripes about that polarize everybody. You're tackling race. You're tackling climate change. You're tackling the economy. You're tackling uh, a a, a want to be dictatorial leader. You're tackling every commerce. You're tackling a big business. I mean, you just get it all in there. And uh, that was, I'm like, wow, I don't think he missed anything. And then you carry that even further into your casting. We're in the courtroom and that's the first thing I notice is that we have a black judge. We have an Arab or Muslim bailiff. We have a black public defender defending a white man uh, who looks like an average white middle class citizen we have an angry older white prosecuting attorney um, who is coming off really with quite a bit of some right-wing vibes and and commentary um, there's a blonde white woman assistant paralegal or associate attorney whatever she is with the prosecutor who never opens her mouth um, which, you know, addresses the whole, you know, patriarchy and, and the old world, you know, a woman shall be seen and not heard uh, ideal. You have everything in there visually as well as in your dialogue. Obviously, this was a conscious decision on your part.
2: Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, <clears throat> and that was that was even when I started writing a script. Um, the only thing that, that fell out was... Uh, uh, the the woman who plays the surprise no the woman that plays the um, the crazy coach Mm -hmm. uh, originally was Hispanic and so I did it as a play first and her name was Maria Gomez and the same woman was going to play be in the in the in the film but she had another gig came up she couldn't do it and it was like the last last minute thing so I knew Christine Bruner who who just killed it and uh, I knew her really well and just called her up and said hey can you can you do this and so she did so. I, lo- I lost the Hispanic representation, but it well, was to get well okay. Else in okay.
0: Okay, but now didn't you have some Hispanic representation in? Because the the premise here is the judge has closed off. There is no public in here. The jury gets sequestered. Um, there's one camera crew in there that is sending out a live feed everywhere. But you have human rights activists who are si- three that are in oh, there. Yeah, yeah. Is it one of them is Hispanic, if I recall?
2: Yeah, that's true. Yeah.
0: So, okay, you got your bases covered. (laughs) You have full representation. And I love the fact um, Denise Delvera, as the the prosecutorial psychiatric expert, Amanda Beal, she was unflappable. Unflappable. Um, I just loved her uh you know in that third act when you had her on the stand and she was being questioned by Amos's attorney Jason Johnson beautifully played by Rico Reed um i spent i i spent 27 over 27 years in law in a lot of trials in my life um along with film criti- doing film criticism but uh i got to tell you she re- immediately reminded me of some of the best expert witnesses that I've seen on the stand in a courtroom. Um, so kudos to her. And similarly with Rico Reed, um, wow, I know some attorneys just like him. I know some. I've seen them in action. And you that's something that you also do is your courtroom procedure. Um, objections that are made, um, the judge's response to them, uh, you know, plays so well. Because as I'm hearing objections coming from the prosecutor and I'm thinking immediately in my head, specious, unfounded, ungrounded, you know, the law never leaves your brain. Uh, (laughs) And you have, your accuracy is in there. So I I appreciated that immensely.
2: Well, it's you know, and it's it would be the trial of the century, oh. and uh, I had you know I had to, I I got it in front of some attorneys that I knew, um, and made sure that all of that was buttoned down as much as possible, and so yeah, a lot you know a lot of you know there was a lot of effort to make all that as realistic as I possibly could, and I'm I'm so I'm so happy to hear you talk about these actors. Uh, to, Debbie, it's, um, you know, they say directing is 80% casting. And uh, I just, I'm just so proud of everybody that was in this film. They just, they just killed it. And, and Josh, you know, I remember oh. when Josh read for the role, um, he did part of that, that uh, monologue he does on the stand. And my jaw dropped. I'm like, oh my God, you know. I said, dude, you're it. You know? Oh, I mean, he <laughs>
0: is riveting, riveting. Yeah. And I love how with your stage direction to him, and I'm assuming you did this on the stage, as and I want to get into this in a moment about your adaptation for film, um, but the way he turns and looks at the jury. um, That is, I mean, that is so critical in something like this. And, but he has such conviction. But he's so personable at the same time. You feel his passion. It is palpable through the screen. But I love those little nuanced things where he turns at the most significant moments and looks at the jury. Or when he looks down when he's talking about something that even he knows it sounds unbelievable. But it's true. And then he punctuates that by raising his head and turning. Those little things add so much weight to the performance and to this film. I uh, it's it's wonderful to watch this, Greg.
2: Thank you. He's uh yeah, he was amazing. And and you know, we I really wanted to, you know, connect the audience with the jury and that was the best way to do it. And um yeah, the other the other aspect of that I don't I, I, I haven't really talked about this much was because because of the who is nature of it you know who is mm-hmm. this guy uh, we shot him differently for most scenes I mean he looks different um, from his clothes to his mannerisms to how he behaves um, sometimes he looks kind of crazy he acts kind of crazy sometimes he acts just like you know your next door neighbor you know so there's a wide range mm-hmm. of emotions and characterizations that he has to has to deliver on that is just really subconscious, I think, on the viewer's part that you're not really aware of it, but just another little thing to kind of keep you on your toes of who is this guy?
0: Yeah, and you know, it-
2: what what is his deal? And at the end of the day, you know, he's. I was really intrigued by the by the concept of you know here's this guy that's a murderer, and he's he's he makes this claim that you know he did it for 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 the country, for the jury, for the planet. And, you know, so he didn't do it for his own self-interest. He did it for everybody else's Mm -hmm. and puts that, you know, that moral obligation on the jury to decide, you know, what do we do with this guy? Yeah. So, yeah, it was all of that. It was just a lot of fun.
0: Well, and you... Writing
2: it especially.
0: (laughs) And you (laughs) add to that, you and your cinematographer, David Morrison, you know, it's always tough to shoot something that's contained in one room... Or okay, one room in a jail cell. (laughs) Let's face it, we got a courtroom (laughs) in a jail cell.
2: There was an office in a hillside too, but yeah,
0: ninety percent of it. But ninety percent. Oh yeah, one one scene in in an office. Um, But you, you, we don't get tired of looking at it because thanks to Josh's performance, to that nuance, to changing the look and how we're perceiving and seeing him, and David's camera work. You constantly take us around the room, but keep us right there in front of the judge. We're in that pl- that play area right there. We're not in the gallery. You keep us there, but somehow you and David manage to keep giving us different angles, different shots, different perspectives and POVs. So that we don't go, okay, here we go. We're looking at the jury box again. Um yeah. You really did a great job with that. How challenging was that for you and David to come up with that variety, to keep visual interest going?
2: Well, we, we knew that going in, you know, because it's, it's, it's in a courtroom. And so it's a, it's a static environment, mm-hmm. and there's nobody running around. There's no a lot of action. There's really no action. It's people standing up, sitting down, and talking. So we knew we had to keep the camera moving. We knew we had to have, you know, we just knew we had, where we put the camera was going to be critical. And so we had to think about that, up, you know, ahead of time to figure all that out, because that was, you know, the, the weak spot of trying to tell a story, because it could have gotten really boring really fast. So, yeah, we just had to figure that out. And and additionally, we had, uh, we, we did it at the height of the pandemic, so there was another loop-de-loop challenge in the whole thing, because we did it with social distancing. And uh, so that kind of, you know, that, that that dictated a lot of where we could put the camera and where we could put people as well. So mm-hmm. it was... It was it wasn't an easy task. It was tough to pull off, but it took a you know once we sat down and knew what our challenges were, we could figure out and came up with a strategy on how to how to deal with it all.
0: Yeah, I mean that was what that was a very impressive aspect of this film for me, Greg is be is the fact that you did change it up and keep it visually interesting um, between what Josh did with his performance emotionally and and then what you and David did with the camera. You know, you never lose our interest, our visual interest. Um, This is not a film that anybody will say, oh, yeah, okay, it's the same shot again. Um, No, we don't (laughs) see that. And this also extends into your editing, which is very tight. Your editing is very tight. Um, And you really, you build tension. When Josh is on the stand, and then all of a sudden we get uh, Mr. Bradley, our prosecutor, jumping up. I object. Um, you know, doing his very best, Johnny Cochran. Um, you know, it's you know, it it catches you. So you keep us on our toes. You keep us off guard, and then you toss in. Which I am just so tickled by your score, oh Greg. Your score. (laughs) Thanks
1: for noticing that.
0: Sean Schaefer Hennessy. The instrumentation here. There are moments where we have a lone coronet that gives a sense of dead man walking. um, Or taps being played at a military funeral. A single snare drum. There's a couple times Amos is walking into the courtroom and all we hear is a faint single snare drum. Like he's being led to an execution. Um, It is subtle, unobtrusive, almost non-existent. But boy, oh boy, do I love this score!
2: Thank you. I'm I'm so pleased to hear that. Um, Sean is just an amazing. He's just an amazing talent. You mentioned the editing. Mark Crutcher was our editor. He he just killed it. And uh, and Sean was. it was really interesting because Sean scored a lot of movies, and when I first talked to him, we've we never we've never met. We've just talked by phone, and um, I, I, you know, I, he'd scored a lot of movies, and and but he's a trumpeter. Uh, he was he was a, Wynton Marsalis's protege,
0: mm-hmm. and
2: like uh, performed for the Colorado Symphony. when He was like thirteen years old. Wow! So he's a trumpeter, and. We were talking, and, like, his other stuff didn't really have a lot of trumpet in it. You know, it's not really a it's not really a cinematic, you know, it's not really used very often. And I was saying, man, you you know, you, you play the trumpet, and to me this film is a very patriotic film. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's about our country. It's about what we're facing. It's about the things we need to do. And so there's a patriotic theme that's, that should be in here somewhere. And I said, you know, like – if you take taps, you know, it's like the most famous trumpet piece in the world. It's what 11 notes,
0: you know, yeah.
2: and it's emotional and it's powerful and it'll make you cry, you know? And he was like, Oh my God, you know? And he sent in his first little riff on it. And again, just knocked me off my chair. The guy's, the guy's phenomenal. So, and he was able to do that throughout. So I'm, I'm so pleased to hear you notice that because oh. it hasn't come up a lot, but, um, it, every time I every time I watch it right here it it, it, it floors me and the opening song as well so I am just so happy with
0: it I mean I recording. just you know it's that in it, it, you know not just the composition but the instrumentation is what yeah. is so significant here and it does it taps into the into uh, you know the patriotism um but you immediately think of you think of a funeral you think of you know, the single snare drum, you know, marching to war, marching to an execution, um, you know, readying for battle when you get the timpani roll, you know, before charge um, is Amos charging with his final, final defensive uh, to save his own life and, you know, explain himself. So I am just it is it, it, it's sparsity is brilliance here. With that score, absolutely yeah, brilliant. Yeah, yeah. It was so I love that this started as a play, as a theatrical piece. Because if it wasn't, I would I would say to you, "Oh my God, you could do this on stage." Uh, <laughs> <laughs> did you? That's actually how work. <laughs> did was it? Did this start as a film or start as a play? Give me that that you know, that timeline, but also how the adaptation worked, be it going stage to screen or screen to stage? Because you've got to make adjustments no matter which, which way that it went.
2: Right. Um, <clears throat> well, that's a great question. So it, it actually, because I'm, I'm a screenwriter, at, you know, at heart, and it started off as, as uh, a screenplay, but it, it was only like 70 pages long and like like i said i i couldn't get the story going until i had to dodge balls yeah pick it off so i had that but i had i had an unmarketable screenplay it was 70 pages long it was too short for a feature film it was you're doomed um, you know too long for like a <laughs> black mirror episode i'm like but i liked what i had I like oh, it was really tight and i liked it I'm like i mean i don't want to mess with this thing and then the you know the reality of, of our world was just, I just there was an urgency to it that I wanted to get this story out there, and I felt like how do I you know how can I get this out there? It's and and I had done a play before and thought you know what what you just said it's, it's basically a courtroom drama I can put if I get rid of if I get rid of the dodgeball stuff you know if I just stick with the courtroom scene and the holding cell I can put that on a stage, and so that's where I that came from. So I started it off with just an urgency to get the story out, and then we, you know, so I I stripped the dodgeball stuff out, and it was still short, so then we went through the, so I'm going to do it as a play, and we went through the rehearsal process, which was, really, it was not something I've been able to do before, spend that much time in rehearsal, we had like a week and a half rehearsals, and so in the rehearsal process, these actors were great, and they asked a lot of great questions, and it it grew a little bit, uh, the script, and so, when we staged it as a play it actually running time was 90 minutes like well that's a feature film yeah (laughs) and so I got done with that and I was like wait a minute you know I got to revisit this thing because the same the same instance was I still just had this well two things happened the reaction to the play was was phenomenal I was I, you know it's really strange you know you write things you don't know you don't know if they're going to work you know you have a Gut feeling about it, but when you see it happen with a live audience and things that you were hoping work work, and then things you didn't even think were going to work worked even better, uh, and you feel that response and you see audience react to it, and it, and it was it was this is a, it, people were arguing about you know the you know well what I did with the play was I, I staged it so that the audience was the jury. Oh, so the prosecutor and defense attorney. And a judge were all facing the the audience, and we gave people ballots on the way in, and asked them to vote on the way out, whether they thought he was guilty or not guilty. So the audience was really engaged in the play as well, and I, it was just a, it was just a fascinating experience. And so I knew I was like, okay, this this thing seems to be working. Um, it's resonating with folks. And, and, and I was, you know, I was concerned, you know, maybe people would be offended by it or walk out or whatever, but none of that happened. And I did a, did a, like a little audience survey afterwards, the theater did. And, you know, the responses were just great. You know, I was like, oh my God, this thing's really working. So that fueled the, okay, let's get, let's find a wider audience and, I then adapted but I just turned it back into the original screenplay, but it was still, I had to add things, and there was, you know, like the, the office, there was just stuff that, was, that we couldn't do on stage that I could do with film, but then additionally, we had to, so I had that ready to go, and then the pandemic hit, and <laughs>
0: that,
2: that threw another curveball into the whole
0: operation. And then you you finally get this thing shot. I You wrap filming somewhere in the fall of 2020. And then, lo and behold, we have an insurrection on January sixth.
2: <laughs> yeah, unbelievable. Um, I, you know, I just finished a trailer. Um, we had a sales agent and, like, you know, waiting on it. And we, and I sent it out, and I didn't really have it. We didn't actually have time. We were so, we were so rushed to get it out there. And um, so I sent it out without really. We just. I really didn't have a a, a trailer that represented the film because we didn't have time to do it and everybody was kind of overwhelmed trying to get the thing done. Uh, my editor was, you know, he had other projects he had to get to and so finally we went and sent it out and it was like a, we got to revisit this trailer so we revisited the trailer and Mark, uh, the edit, Mark, Mark Crutcher, our editor, just came up with this phenomenal trailer and I sent it out on, I think it was January 4th, January 4th or 5th,
0: <laughs> the, the sales
2: folks and my phone blew up on <laughs> January 6th. You're like, oh, my God. You know, your film's on TV. Go watch. And I, I didn't even know what was going on. I, I, I went to, you know, turn the TV on, and my jaw dropped. And then they were calling me like, can you get a film crew up to Washington and start shooting some of this?
0: Oh, my God.
2: <laughs> like, no, that's not going to happen. But, yeah, it, it, there was a very, there was a, I guess, I don't know, prescient kind of thing about the whole
0: uh, t- story. T- that's an understatement an understatement. Um, you know, I'm curious because this is your first feature directorial. So uh, for you as, as a storyteller, as a writer, and now as a director, you know, what did you learn about yourself in making this film in making who is Amos Otis that you can now take forward into your future projects? I know you have a couple of shorts under your belt. Um, but I'm curious, you know, what did you learn making this one, as a feature director, that you can now take forward?
2: Wow, <laughs> that's a great question. Um, a lot, and what So my day job is, and you know, I do a lot. Of, I, I do commercials and advertising work, and. Um, there was a, just, a, just a, the, the first thing I learned was just to trust my instincts. Um, they're usually 90% of the time they're, they're right on, and trust the people you work with. And you know, I've always I've always believed in um, assembling the best people you can get, and you know, and so that, that's paramount to doing anything. And that, that was just reinforced dramatically because a lot of this, when we shot it, like I couldn't, I'm used to like sitting in the editing suite with my editor and going through stuff. You know um, Like I said, I never I never met Sean, the composer. So all this stuff was having to be done remotely because of the pandemic. And so a lot of it on my end was like I just had to let it go and say, okay, you know I've got the best people I can get and, and let's see what they come up with and I can give them some direction on where it needs to go. And nine times out of ten they would just blow my mind. And so that was, you know, that was the biggest thing I learned. Um, you know, Dave Morrison and I we'd have disagreements on this or that or the other thing and you just let it go, you know, and sometimes he'd go, Hey, you were right on that and I'd go, Hey, you were way right on that and it's just a it's a the the, the rewarding part of the whole thing was that it's such a collaborative effort and when you have really talented people collaborating with you um, it's just, it's, it's, it's incredibly fun. It's incredibly rewarding. And, you know, you, it, it just turns out, you know, it turns out way better than you could have ever, ever imagined. And so that's the thing It's just like, let it go. You know, you can always rein it in where it needs to be reined in, but just let people do what they do. Um, you know, nudge them every now and then if you have to nudge them, but, uh, be open-minded and, and see where it goes. And then if you have to rein things in, do it. But, that was the biggest thing I think I learned was just let it go.
0: Well, I'm glad you let it go because you delivered an amazing, amazing film to us with Who is Amos Otis? You know, unfortunately, we are out of time for today. But now, just so where can everybody see where is A- Who is Amos Otis? Uh, I know it's on Amazon Prime.
2: Amazon Prime, <clears throat> Google Play, iTunes. All the uh, usual suspects. TV, yeah, 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 pay-per-view, you know, pay-per-view tier.
0: Yeah, all the usual suspects, yeah, because I know it came out December 28th, uh, and this was the first day that I had opened to get you on the show to talk about it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, Greg, I can't thank you enough.
1: A that, true,
0: thank you. Oh, an absolute pleasure. I hope you'll come back on the show again, and I hope you'll make another film. Oh, thanks!
2: I'd love to. I'd love to be back on your show again. And thanks for supporting independent film. I really, you know, it's such a you know it's such a challenge to pull off making a film um, on low budgets and things like that, and have have voices out there like yours that support it and understand what's involved. And, and uh, it's just really helpful. So, thank you.
0: Oh, that's my privilege. I love my low budget, no budget, micro budget films. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Greg, thank you so much, and you have a great rest of your week.
2: All right. Thanks, Debbie. Thanks,
0: Greg. Bye-bye. Right. Bye-bye. And that was Greg Newberry, writer, director, and playwright. Who is Amos Otis? See it. See it. It will open discussion. You might not like some of what is it, it, it said, but there is something here. Everything in here is worthy of discussion. Um. A really wonderful, wonderful film. Uh, and that is all the time we have this week. Next week, we got a full house next week. Joy Via is going to be joining us live, talking about The Contrast. And my friend Mark Pellington is going to be with us live, talking about his new film, The Severing, which will be premiering at Slamdance. So, until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.